Good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Power back on? Yes? Ours came on Wednesday. I know uh, some didn't come on until Friday, so we're glad the power is back on. If you're a visitor this morning, um, I might not know because we've been gone for a long time and there's a lot of new people here since we last were here, so um, I'm not the pastor here. I'm Scott. I'm a missionary from this church, sent out from this church by you guys. And uh, because of that, um, Tony is out of town. Michael and Tony asked if I could come and share with you guys this morning a little bit about our ministry, what we're doing, kind of our history. It's been a long history. It's been a windy road if you guys have been following us at all. And so I just want to, you know, kind of get you, you know, back into what we're doing, where we're headed, things that are going on. And then the second half, uh, I'm going to spend hopefully encouraging us in the Word. Um, it's a story from John 4 that you guys are familiar with, but I think it's really going to relate to the first half. So uh, in our ministry, and what hopefully will be a ministry of Cornerstone, just in your involvement, um, hopefully from John 4 we'll be encouraged. Uh, so I just want to start with, um, with who, who we are. Who are we? I have to say this first. Um, we're just like you. We're perfect. <laughs> we're saints. We are, we are godly people. Only by the grace of God, right? It's through the gospel that we've been... I love, I love Lance. This is, I don't know Lance very well yet. But like the whole singing and everything was all about the gospel. It was all about being declared righteous in Christ. It's not us, but him, right? It's all Jesus. It's his life. It's his obedience to the Father. It's his death, his resurrection. It's all him. And I don't want at all anyone to have the impression like, uh, me and my family, like, we're these awesome, super sanctified people uh, because we're messed up. We're totally messed up, probably more so than you. Uh, we fail to read our Bibles all the time. We fail to pray. We fail to uh, find our joy in God. We fail to uh, confess our sins to each other. We fail to love people. We fail to love God. We fail, we fail, we fail, and yet somehow, by the grace of God, we are not failures. By the grace of God, we are not failures. Our identity is in Christ. It's hidden in Him, and we can approach the Father because of His righteousness, and it's all Him. And so I say that because as I talk about ministry, I don't want you to get the impression like these people are really awesome, sanctified people because we have huge issues, but God uses messed up people to accomplish His plan, which all glory to God. It's awesome to be used by God, and it's all Him. So, just want to get that out of the way. Don't think like we're awesome people. We just want to follow God and all glory to Him. So this is us. This is our family. Uh, I love this picture. We took it Friday. And it's literally the first good picture we've ever taken as a family. Like you get the impression like we're like a really good family. Like the kids obey and they're sitting there smiling looking at the camera. And you need to remember that it literally takes a fraction of a second for this to happen. So like for that fraction, things look good. Uh, before that, Kate and I were probably disagreeing about something, and the kids were screaming and throwing stuff and writing on the walls. So uh, this is the snapshot of, you know, our family. Um, Grace is our oldest child. She's five. She's in the middle holding our youngest, Lucy, who's about two weeks. And uh, that's a cool story in itself of how she was born on the bathroom floor. But we can tell that story another day. Um, it's your story, I promise. Micah is the second. He's sitting next to me, and then Phoebe's our third. And uh, we've got a full house. We are very, very stressed and busy all the time. So uh, that's us. I just want to um, go back over the last couple of years. It's 2012 now. Uh, I'm going to go back to 2005. And I have this handy um, timeline. I call it my overly simplified not-to-scale timeline. And you'll see why. Uh, but this is going to kind of rehash the last couple of years. Fall 2005, um, we're young Christians. We had just gotten married in August. And we had maybe been following Jesus for like a year. And, you know, we, we knew enough to like love God and to be saved, but that was about it. I mean, we, we didn't know much. And so we were invited by a family that moved out here. It's no lot they've moved back to California, but we lived in the same apartment complex. And they invited us to Cornerstone. And, uh, and that was great. We came and we got plugged in right away. I mean, we just started growing and learning and growing in grace and in knowledge. And it was a really, really, really great season, probably the best season of our lives spiritually, to be honest. We loved it here. It was just a small group. We were learning good times. Um, by January of 2006, then, we hear this sermon uh, via a podcast from Simi Valley. Uh, this guy named Brad Buser. he was a missionary to Papua New Guinea, and he preached on Matthew 28, 18 through 20 or something, 19 is the main verse, 
um, where Jesus said, go make disciples of every nation, right? And his message was, this is what Jesus said. What are you doing? And we said, shoot, we're not doing anything. And so it was that simple. It wasn't like this like miraculous vision or light. It was like, no, the Bible says, Jesus says, go make disciples of the nations. What are you doing? We're not doing anything. So we were very, very convicted enough that God used that to, um, to redirect our lives. I mean, we were headed. I had a good job. We had a house. I mean, things were going good. Um, we had two great cats. I mean, things were, things were good. Um, and then all of a sudden, it just was rubbish. And we were like, this, this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. This isn't it. And so from 2006 to 2009, let's see if this works here, yeah. Um, it was a long three years of seeking God's direction and just a lot of closed doors. But in January of 2009, we moved to southern Texas to train with, with a mission organization uh, called Two Every Tribe. Um, they're a pioneer church planning agency. They engage unreached people groups, people that have never heard about Jesus, and that's what we wanted to do. So in January of 2009, moved to southern Texas, Brownsville. Um, if you guys think this is hot, seriously, it's like this plus 5, 10 degrees every day for eight months straight. No joke hot all the time. Um, but we got good training there, went to Papua New Guinea uh, during that time. I spent a month there that year. And uh, by the end of that training, August of 2009, we had joined a team to go to New Guinea. Um, let's see, is that on here? No. Uh, so through August of 2009, when we finished, we had committed to join a team to go to New Guinea. We started support raising. So we started going from church to church and state to state, driving with two and then three kids and doing the support raising thing. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, um, we sense God doesn't want us to go. And we're like, shoot, we just spent all this time training and all this money traveling and raising all this support and telling all these people, this is what we're going to do, telling you guys, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. We should have realized that, Lord willing, this is what we were going to do. I think I probably said that with a little you know, head nod, but um, God had different plans. And all of a sudden, he said, no, you're not going. And so from January 2011 to May of this year, uh, I was on staff at Two Every Tribe. I mean, having to communicate to people, we're sorry, we're not going to New Guinea. We don't really know what's next. We have a role to play. You know, support roles are definitely essential in mission. I mean, be- behind every frontline uh, soldier, you have like six or seven behind them doing logistics and stuff like that. So support roles in mission is good. Um, it's just not what God had given us a heart to do. I mean, he, we felt very much... He had given us that Pauline spirit to go make disciples where the name of Christ had never been named. And so we were just really confused. This was a pretty, to be honest, pretty dark season. I mean, we weren't plugged in at a good church. Um, we, there just wasn't good fellowship. We felt very much alone. Uh, we're just in Texas doing communication stuff and working on my computer every day. And we're just like, God, you know, what, are you, what are you doing in this? We're, we're confused. We don't, you know, never holding a charge against God, but just confused. You know, what are you doing? And so for a year and a half, I worked uh, with Sue Every Tribe doing, you know, web design and graphic design and stuff like that. And it was good. I mean, God was using us. It was, it was good, but we just knew it wasn't it. So we began to pray and pray and just ask God, you know, what are you doing? What do you want us to do? I mean, at this point, really, we could have done anything. I mean, we were, like, wide open. It's like, whatever you want, God, we, we will do it. Just make it clear. You know, we don't want to make another misstep or, you know, whatever. And... Um, and I don't know how it happened. I really have no idea. The only thing I remember is uh, visiting Columbus sometime in 2011, maybe, maybe 2010, 11, and being at uh, Kathy Feigenbus's house with Pete and Karen Hewling. I don't know if you guys know all those people. but And I remember saying, we don't know what God wants us to do, but we will never, ever, ever, never move back to Columbus. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, God seems to have a sense of humor about certain things, and so here we are. We're back in Columbus. We live here, and that's what I'm going to just talk about briefly. I'm going to spend probably another 10 or 15 minutes just talking about our ministry, and then, then we'll get into John 4. Uh, so we moved to Columbus this May. Um, we just had our fourth baby, and we're doing ministry. So let's see. Um, we're here. We're full-time supported. That might surprise some of you. Why support stateside missionaries? I, it would have surprised me three years ago. You send your money overseas. That's where the needs are at. That's where the unreached people are at. You know, why waste our money? It's okay to say that. I mean, we should be thinking strategically about how we're using our money. That's okay to say that. Is it a waste of money to support stateside missionaries? And, um, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have said maybe. 
And then God really started to show me what he's doing. And I was very surprised by it. I think you might be too. And so um, these are some statistics from the UNHCR. It's the United Nations Head Commissioner of Refugees. And I'm going to show you some numbers from 1980 to 2010 where people are coming from into the United States. I think the numbers and the places might surprise you. So from 1980 to 2010, 30 years, 416,000 Somalis have relocated here. There's a terrible mess going on in Mogadishu, and Somalia is a country, I think it's the most dangerous country in the world. People are fleeing, they're coming here, they're going to Europe, they're going to Canada, wherever. 416,000 Somalis, 45,000 Pakistanis. Let me get to the pace, there we go. 254,000 Iraqis since the war, obviously. 402,000 Iranians, 16,000 Nepalis, 108,000 people from India, Indians, uh, 85,000 Albanians, 25,000 people from Azerbaijan, 124,000 Cambodians, 22,000 Eritreans. You might not even have heard of some of these countries. 285,000 Ethiopians, 57,000 Indonesians. That's a lot of people, right? I and mean, that's a lot of people that God is bringing here. Do you know what these countries have in common? Muslim, some of them, yeah. Anything else? Have you guys heard of the 1040 window? All of them are from the 1040 window. The 1040 window is this area of the world that's between uh, 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north latitude, where the majority of the world's unreached people groups are at. The majority are Muslim, uh, Buddhist, or Hindu. And um, in fact, there's 69 countries within this window, and there are people from every single country in America from the 1040 window. I mean, God's up to something. There's something going on here, right? That from every country in this, which these are the hardest places to get into, right? You hear about closed countries. You can't just go as a missionary. You've got to start a business or whatever. There's people from every country. I mean, that's, that's significant. So God's doing something, and that's what we're trying to figure out. Like, what, what is God up to here? How can we get involved in that? You know, how can we get plugged into that? And other people are starting to see this, too. You've got ministries like Frontiers, which is one of the big uh, Muslim, ministry, uh, Muslim ministries that do pioneer church planning among Muslims. Um, they're be- they, they have sent out their first team, stateside team, to begin doing what they've been doing abroad all these years because people are seeing there's a trend going on here. God's doing something. Let's get plugged into it. So that's why we're here. Actually, there's 45,000 Somali Muslims that live in Columbus, 45,000 plus it's the second largest population in America, second to uh, Minneapolis. There's like 60 to 80,000 there we've actually visited. It's a very similar, you go into the malls in, in Minneapolis, you go to the Somali malls here. Very similar. Um, and the question is, okay, we know that they're here now, so they're here. And we're a Christian country, and there's churches on every corner, right? So that's good. They'll hear the gospel, right? No, they won't. We need to take the gospel to them still. Just because they've come here doesn't mean by default they're going to hear the gospel. One of the malls that I visit on Columbus Avenue is right next door to a church building. And when I go in there and I talk about Jesus, it's clear that they've never heard the gospel. They still think the Trinity is God, Mary, and Jesus, and God had sex with Mary and had Jesus. And I mean, they, have, they don't have a clue. And so even though they're here, somebody still needs to cross that barrier, still needs to strip the gospel of all the cultural baggage that we have added and just take it to them in its simplest form. So I've mentioned that uh, Somalis are, are Muslim. Actually, 99.9% of all Somalis are Muslim. There's a Somali proverb that says, you know, to be Somali is to be Muslim. It's who they are. It's their identity. And so because of that, they're not going to come to church. Why would a Muslim go to church? Why would a Christian go to a mosque, right? It just doesn't make sense. They're not going to come to it. Uh, so you've probably seen, you know, if you spent any time south of 270 at all, um, you've seen the women in the hijabs, right, and the head coverings. Uh, maybe some of them, even the burqas, their whole face, except for their eyes, are covered. Um, you've seen the men, the, the robes that they wear, they're called dishadashas in Arabic. It's kind of a neat word. Um, but you might feel uncomfortable when you see them, maybe, right? I know a couple weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, we were in TJ Maxx, and we saw this lady, and she asked us a question, and it was just her eyes that were showing. And even still, I mean, I've you know, been around the world a couple times, and not many, but seen a lot of weird things, seen a lot of different clothes in New Guinea, for example, the lack of clothes and just, you know, different things. But this still weirds me out. You know what I mean? You just, you just see the eyes. Because when I talk to someone, I engage their face. You look at their mouth, their nose, you know, you just, but you can't do that. So you just see these eyes. Some women even have their eyes covered, right, with the screens, and so you can't see anything. 
So it might make you feel uncomfortable. It might make you feel vulnerable. You might be afraid, right? I mean, in light of 9-11, a lot of Americans are afraid of Muslims, like all these terrorists are living in our country. What are, you know, what are we doing? Um, so I just want to talk a few minutes about who are these people, these Muslims living in our land. You know, what do they believe? Um, and I think you might be interested in some of the things that they believe. Uh, because they believe in one sovereign, holy, perfect creator God. They believe in the stories of Adam and Eve, and in Noah, and Abraham, and Moses, and David, and Jonah, John the Baptist, and Jesus, who, Jesus, who they call Jesus the Messiah. They believe that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. They believe that Jesus performed miracles, that he was sinless, that he healed the sick, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind. And they believe that Jesus was coming back to judge the world. Now, wait a second. Am I, am I talking about Muslims? Yeah, I'm talking about Muslims. We share a lot of similar stories, similar history with our Muslim friends, and these are all things that we can bridge to. These are all things that we can talk about. I go to these malls, literally, I say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and they say, we love Jesus. We love Jesus, the Messiah. And, okay, they're thinking of the same person. Historically, yes. In identity, no. Okay? They're, they're thinking of Isa, right, um, when... I'm getting too far into this. I didn't mean to. But when Muhammad wrote the Quran, his influences of the time were Jews and Christians. And so when he wrote this, he's thinking of the God of Abraham. He's thinking of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus. So do they believe the right things about Jesus? No. But do they have some stories about Jesus, the historical Jesus? Yes. Again, things that we can relate to. They love to talk about Jesus. They love to talk about his miracles. Um, it's, it's a bridge. It's a bridge to the gospel. It's a way to relate to them that we can share with them the truth, the salvation that Jesus um, answers, or offers. Sorry. So there's five basic tenets or pillars of Islam. You may be familiar with them. The first is called the Shahada. Okay, it's their creed. It's, I believe that there's only one God. Um, there's no God but God, and that Muhammad is his messenger. Okay? Um, I think that we could agree on half of this, right? There's no God but God. God in heaven, the one creator, sovereign God. Um, so we can agree with half of that. Um, the second half, well, we probably wouldn't agree that Muhammad is his messenger, so um, we can't really agree there. But uh, the Salat is, is the second pillar. It's their prayer time. They pray five times a day, very ri- ritualistic prayer. They do the same thing. They chant the same thing. They do the same um, postures and everything. Um, Five times a day, they wash themselves with some uh, ceremonial washing behind their ears, their hands, their feet, stuff like that. They want to be, in their minds, clean before Allah. Um, number three is the zakat. It's their giving. It's like our tithe. I mean, they give 2.5%. We give as the Lord you know, encourages us to. Some say 10%, others say just whatever. Um, four, Ramadan. It's coming up. It's their month of fasting. Right? I think it's at the end of this month. Great time to be praying for our Muslim friends because they're... A lot of people say they're very sensitive at this time to spiritual things because they're fasting, they're praying, they're seeking God. A lot of Muslims have had dreams during this time of Jesus that has you know, called them to himself. And then the fifth uh, pillar is the Hajj. It's their pil- uh, pilgrimage to Mecca. That's like their holy land. Um, I studied a little bit on the Kaaba last night, actually. And uh, they, they're supposed to take one trip in their life if they can. It's kind of like a half tenant because if you can't make it, I guess it's okay. Uh, but what's neat about this is it's, it's just more things that we can relate on, right? We, Muslim friends like to hear Christians um, express their religion. And what I mean by that is they don't think Christians pray. They don't think Christians give. They, they associate Christianity with the West, right? And so this immoral nation with all the sexual immorality, that's what they think of Christians. And it's like to see a Christian who fasts and prays and says, I'm praying for you. I'm fasting and praying for you every day that I fast every day, but I'd be pretty hungry. Um, but for them to know that and to know that you read the Bible and that you believe it's true, I mean, these things, they want to hear that. And it's not like Jesus saying, you know, don't show your good works. They, they want to know that you are following what you really believe, and they'll respect that, and they'll listen to you if they know that. So again, just things, ways that we can relate to them. Their basic book is the Quran, uh, written by, well, they don't think it was written by Muhammad, given to Muhammad, they have a secondary book called the Hadith, which is the writings of, uh, of Muhammad's life. It's kind of like our Proverbs. It's where they get a lot of their Sharia law from, stuff like that. Uh, but it's a secondary book for them. They don't elevate it to the level of the Quran. Um, they, would never, they would never write in the Quran. They would never read it in the bathroom. They'd never set it down on someplace dirty. They'd never put another book on top of it. They have high reverence for the book itself. They believe it's actually God's word. And so um, 
that's something to, to keep in mind if you ever you know, are interacting with one. Don't just like toss it in your bag or throw it up. Not that, not that we think it's from God, but you, know, you don't want to offend them right off the bat. So um, I, I, just, I share all these things just because there's 1.6 million, billion uh, Muslims worldwide and growing. We know that. I mean, we see the, those videos where scared, like they're having a billion kids and they're going to you know, outgrow us and by the year 2015 or whatever. Like They're here, and so if we know a little bit about them, maybe it'll help us to love them better and to relate to them better and not be afraid of them. And so that's why I share uh, some of these things about Islam. So what exactly are we doing? Well, in terms of methodology, not much has changed from what we wanted to do in New Guinea. Um, it's just a different people group, a different location. That's really it. We want to make Somali disciples who will disciple Somalis. We want a multiplying church to be planted where Somalis are discipling Somalis. The church is growing and multiplying and splitting, and, and that's what we want to see. I mean, when Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, he says to train men to train other men. He's thinking multiplication. He's not just thinking let's add to the church. He's thinking let's multiply the church. Let's see this thing blow up and expand. And so that's what we want to do. I mean, it's, it's a very simple relational methodology. Right now, we are just in the earning the right to be heard stage. Uh, we're just going to their mall, spending time with people, praying with them, praying for them. Um, I've started ESL with one guy. I'll share this story real quick. Um, I totally, f- I bombed, to be honest. If you're on our email list, you may have read this. Uh, I met with my friend. He wants some help reading English. And so I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity. I'll use a children's Bible, Okay. And so great pictures, easy to read text, and we'll go through the story of Moses and the Passover and all that. A great illustration pointing forward to Jesus. This is going to be great. Well, after about 15 minutes, 20 minutes in the library, my friend is acting very awkward. He said, you know, I don't, I don't really want to learn the Bible. Because here's what he was doing. He was reading a section of the story of the ten plagues. They only believe in nine. And he would tell me what the Quran says about that story, not what he just read. And so I saw it was going nowhere fast. He was actually... It turns out he was somewhat offended because they don't believe in images of the prophets, and they regard Moses as a prophet. And here you've got this pretty picture of Moses in the children's Bible. And so we're going to offend them. Let's try not to offend them all the time, I guess, is all I'm saying. <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm asking of you guys. Um, if this is something you're interested in, the Somalis are here. God has brought them here. If this is something you're interested in, I would love just to talk about it. We'd love to take you to their malls, to the restaurants, and just make you feel uncomfortable, because you will. I mean, seriously, it's, you walk in, and it's dingy, and it's dark, and it's not like Easton, it's not like Polaris. It's like, I say to everyone, this place on Cleveland Avenue, if there's going to be homegrown terrorists, jihadists, this is where they're going to hang out. Like, seriously. You get that sense when you walk in. Um, great people, though. It's just the environment. When you start talking to the people, I mean, I, I can't get them to stop buying me food. Every time I go there, they buy me the sambusa, they buy me the tea. They, they're very kind to me. They're very welcoming. It's just part of their, their community. So uh, great people. If you want to get involved, just email us. It's theronyaks at yahoo.com, theronyaks at whatever, gmail.com. It's just theronyaks at something, and it'll go to us. Um, <laughs> seriously, I pretty much have them all. So, um, so email us. Uh, we'd also love to invite you to pray with us. I've made uh, Monday the day where I will fast and pray for Muslim friends. And so if this is something that maybe God's burdening you to do, just to pray, um, I would love for you to be on a special email list where I would send names, because when I do the big ones, I don't include names for security purposes. But if there's a small group that really say, yeah, we, we want to pray with you, because without prayer, nothing's going to happen. And I sense that we've only been here for two months, and I sense this. Unless God opens their eyes, all this is for nothing, seriously. I mean, I go and I share the gospel, and I share stories from the Old Testament that point to Jesus, and it's just like I'll tell them a story and then they'll tell me one right back that is their version of it or something like that. Unless God does the work, nothing's going to happen. And so I just want to invite you, if you want to pray with us, fast with us, um, we'd love to have you involved with that. So that's, did I skip over anything? Let's see, I think I'm good. Yes, I'm good. Okay. That's our ministry. That's what we got going on. I didn't want to forget anything. Um, but again, that's just brief, 20 minutes, something like that. If you want more information, email, chat with us. We're here. We'd love to do coffee sometime. We'd love to have you over for dinner sometime. We'd love to get to know you. There's a lot of you here that we don't know, and so we genuinely just like to get to know you guys. So for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to be in John 4. So if you want to get out your Bibles, turn to John 4. We're going to look at a story of Jesus. Um, 
There's a lot we can learn from Jesus, isn't there? He's a pretty awesome leader, discipler. Just real quick, I'll set up the context of this story. Um, Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem at the Passover, and he kind of catches wind that the Pharisees already hate him a lot, and they want to kill him. And uh, so he decides he's going to travel back up north, back into Galilee. And so um, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, uh, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about 12 noon. Uh, our time. So Jesus goes from Jerusalem to Galilee, back to Cana, we see in verse 46. Back to Cana, where he turned the water into wine. Does anyone have any idea why this is a big deal? I mean, who cares? Like, here's the map, right? So he's in, see the red here, the bottom red, he's in Jerusalem. He goes up through Sychar, and then he's going to end up in, in Cana, in Galilee. I mean, it's a pretty direct route. Right? What's the big deal? That's right. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So a lot of the Jews in the time, I, you can't really see this yellow, sorry, but they, they would cross the Jordan River, they'd go up, and then they, they'd go around. It was significantly longer because they were walking around Samaria. So for John to write in John 4, 4, and he had to pass through Samaria, that's a big deal. I mean, there was something more than just a shorter route here. It was like he, he had, there, were, there was something that he had to do that made him have to go through Samaria, not just a shorter route. And so what we're going to do for the majority of the time, I'm actually going to read uh, 7 through 30, and that's going to pretty much be um, all you're going to get of the story. But I want to spend a lot of time setting the story up because there's a lot of significance in the Jews and the Samaritans not having... Um, not, not feeling good about each other, having bad feelings. So we're going to talk about Samaria. It started as a city, the city of Samaria, okay? It was the, the, kingdom, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. King Am, Amri uh, was one of the early kings of the northern kingdom. And he purchased the city in 880 B.C., the 880s. So we're going way back. Uh, it was the capital of the northern kingdom until 721. So it's like 160 years, something like that. Um, when they were taken captive by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians came in, they took all the Jews out uh, under king, I can't say these names, but Shalmansar, Shalmanasar, something like that. Uh, well, his grandson, a couple years later, 50, 100 years later, repopulated Samaria now with Assyrians. Okay, so all the Jews come out, and all the Assyrians go in. And um, there's a bunch of names here from 2 Kings 17.24, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. But what you need to know uh, is that Samaria now was a city populated with Assyrians, not Jews, okay? And this is in like the 700s B.C. Well, what happens when they entered the land is they started to get eaten by lions. I mean, which is not good, right? It's not a good thing. You don't want to be eaten by a lion. So they complain to the king, and they say, you put us here, and we're getting eaten by lions. Like, help us. What's going on? We know it's because we don't worship the God or we don't fear the Lord of the people that lived here. Somehow they knew that. I thought that was pretty amazing. They knew because they didn't fear the Lord, Yahweh, it's the capital L-O-R-D, that that's the reason that they were being eaten by lions. So the king sends one of the priests of Israel uh, to go teach them how to fear the Lord. So that's a good Let's teach them they can fear this Lord and then maybe they won't be eaten by lions. So it's a good thought. Um, so what happens, they send the priest. And in 2 Kings uh, 17.33, we read, Well, they feared the Lord and also served their own gods. So that's kind of a failure. That's not good. So we call this today, we call it syncretism. It still happens all around the world today. We see it a lot uh, when people go to animistic tribes, specifically, just speaking historically here, when Catholics would take the gospel to animistic tribes, um, what they would do is that all the deities that they worship, they would put a saint name to it. And now it looked like Catholicism, but in reality, nothing had changed in their hearts. They were still worshiping their deities, just had given them different names. So this is what happened. They added the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the list of the gods that they wanted to please, that they sacrificed to, etc. 
So some years passed, and Judah had already been taken into exile also, and now they're coming back. So now we're talking about the southern kingdom. They go to Jerusalem, and they start to rebuild the temple, okay? Some of the Samaritans come down, and they say, hey, we'd love to help you rebuild your temple. We worship the same God, right? Because we saw now, historically, there was some teaching about Yahweh, right? The same God that the Jews uh, worship. But Judah said, no. You, you guys really don't. You can't help us. You have no part with us. Like, you're not Jewish. We don't want your help. And because of that, the Samaritans got kind of angry about that. And uh, from the book of Ezra, in chapter 4, pretty much to summarize, they do everything they can through the kings, the kings of, uh, of Persia, um, to not let them build the temple. And so they keep working, and the kings are trying to, they were trying to frustrate the the southern kingdom, to not allow them to build the temple. I'll, I'll just read it real quick. It says, um, the people of the land, speaking of the Samaritans. Now, it's important to know in verse 1 that comes before this, it says the enemy of the people. So already the Samaritans are the enemies of the Jews. But it says, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, and the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So things weren't good, right? The, the Samaritans wanted help. The Jews said no. This relationship is already getting pretty messed up. It doesn't really stop there. Uh, throughout history then, before Jesus, we have more hostility. Under Nehemiah, when they start to build the wall, uh, we read about how the Samaritans were going to come and they were going to attack them and kill them and cause them to stop building the wall. But uh, the people of Judah heard about it, and so half of the men would carry swords and shields and and stuff like that, while the other would build the wall. So um, you might say, just maybe, that the Jews felt the Samaritans were terrorists at that point, right? They were threatening what they wanted to do for really no reasons other than religious reasons. So the Jews might be thinking a little bit the Samaritans are like what we would think of terrorists today. They also had some issues over the temple, okay? So since the Jews didn't let them help build their temple, they said, well, we're going to build our own temple. And so they built this temple on Mount Gerizim, which is in Shechem, which is the same city as Sychar, just a different name. And um, so they build their temple, and they say, our temple is superior to your temple, right? This is the mountain when the Israelites came into the land, and they pronounced their uh, blessing on the land. This is the mountain they did it on. In fact, we think this is the mountain that Abraham uh, was going to sacrifice Isaac on. This is, this is God's holy mountain. This is where the temple should be. And of course, the Jews are saying, no, it's on Mount Zion. Like, so... They have this thing going on. So it's, you know, they've got this hostility. They've got the temple issue. They have scripture issues. Um, one of the kings of Judah uh, um, intermarried, and Nehemiah said, you can't do that. So he was, he was one of the bad kings of the southern kingdom. He actually took the Torah to the Samaritans. And so they had this, this Torah, the five books of Moses. Um, but the Jews said no because it came through Manasseh. It's really not the Torah. So there's this, you know, dispute over their holy writings and then you've got this issue of lineage where the Samaritans said, we are from Abraham. We are from the line of Abraham. We should partake in the blessings of that. And the Jews said, no way, you're half-breeds. Like, they look back into history, they said these were Assyrians. And yes, there was the priest who came, but they're not bloodline. And we see, we'll see that in the story when the woman says, are you greater than our father Jacob? So they claim this bloodline. And um, so there's, we, we see even more when... Um, there's a story from Luke 9 when Jesus and his disciples were going to go through Samaria another time. Um, the Samaritans said, no, you can't stay here. And James and John, who seemed to like, understand things right away all the time, said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Like, they didn't let you stay here. Let's just burn them up. I mean, obviously, they don't have a very high view of the Samaritans. Uh, so this is the relationship in Jesus' day when it says he had to go through Samaria. This, this is the historical background of the situation. And uh, so there was violence, hostility, there was pride and fear, and even, I guess, misunderstanding, maybe, right? And so they were enemies. Um, I think there's a comparison that we can make today. It's not perfect. I mean, it's not a perfect comparison. But to help us to understand the way the Jews may have felt about the Samaritans, I think that we should um, think about these folks here. I think this, this one's even a little bit better. Okay. Again, not a perfect comparison. But when you see that picture, what do, you, what do you feel? Does you feel a little bit of fear maybe? Or a little bit of discomfort or, or something? It's just, it's not, 
it's, it's different from us. We're, we're scared of it. Um, you know, there's, there's terrorism. There's hostility. There's this issue over our holy writings. There's this issue over, you know, where's the temple supposed to be? There's this issue over lineage. They say they're from Abraham also. You know, we've, we've got all these things. That, the way the Jews felt about the Samaritans, I'm convinced, is the way a lot of American Christians feel about Muslims. And so just to build the context of this, it would be as if Jesus was walking, it would, Jesus walking through Samaria would be as if we would be walking through Mecca, right? Which is their holy place. It's where the Kaaba is. It's where they make their Hajj. Um, that'd be a big deal for a Christian, an open, outward Christian, a proclaimer of salvation and Jesus' death and resurrection to walk through Mecca. And so it's a big deal that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So this is the cultural context. Like I said, I'm just going to read 7 through 30, and I'm, we're not going to talk much about this story because the, the main thing here is that Jesus is even here, that he even took the time that he had to go through. So we're going to read the story. We'll talk about it a little bit. Starting at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? She knew the historical context. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She doesn't understand what he's saying. Uh, Where then do you get that living water? Are you, are you not greater than our father Jacob? I'm sorry, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. So he's saying, yes, I am greater than Jacob, uh, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. Uh, This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and, is, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship, in, uh, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes... He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or what do you speak with her? Why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So how does Jesus interact with this woman? Uh, does he say, hey, do you remember when you tried to kill us when we were trying to rebuild our wall? You guys are you're, you're terrorists, right? Of course he doesn't say that. Or does he say, you know, you're in our country. Like, this is the country God gave us, and you're kind of in our way. We've got to walk all the way around, and we go from Judea to Galilee and back. So would you just leave? You know, does he say, no, I really don't like the way you dress. You dress different from us. It's kind of awkward, so could you just like dressed like us. And by the way, your Aramaic is a little rusty. Would you work on that so I could understand you better, right? Um, of course he doesn't say that. But the reason I ask those questions is I think, myself, sometimes is this the way I feel about our friends, the Muslims that God has brought here, right? We, we focus on the outward. You dress different. That's weird. Or you drive slow in the left lane. That's bad. Or, you know, we focus on these things but this isn't what Jesus focuses on. He doesn't focus on this historical religious baggage. So what, what does Jesus say? Uh, well, he asks for some water. 
He said, give me a drink. Here's something I learned. I always read this and thought, Jesus, are you rude? Um, the language of Somali is uh, from Arabic. It's very similar, a lot of commonality. And when they ask for something, they don't have the word please, okay? So they just say, give me a drink. And it's not rude at all. That's just what they say. Jesus isn't being rude. He isn't like, woman, give me a drink, right? He's asking for a drink of water, which is a major taboo for many reasons, okay? Um, the woman actually calls him out and says, wait a second. You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Um, why are you asking for my water? Like, you don't drink from our cups. You don't drink our water. You think we're half-breeds. You think we're idolaters. Uh, you think we worship in the wrong place. You think we're half-breeds. All these things, right? And Jesus just goes right past that. In verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So wait a second. Did Jesus just look past all of that history, all of that stuff, and offer her eternal life, like right away? I mean, he, didn't, he didn't deal with any of that stuff. He just said, had you known, you would have asked. Had you asked, I would have given it to you, right? So he's offering this half-breed, this enemy, this, this terrorist, whatever you want to say, he offered her eternal life. And it just, it seems like maybe, maybe Jesus is inaugurating something new, right? A time when the gospel would be proclaimed to everybody, right? Regardless of religion or race or nationality or political affiliation, whatever. Jesus is just straight up, had you asked, I would have given it to you. So he's at this well, totally taboo. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. He spoke to a woman, totally taboo. Rabbis would not speak with women like that alone. Um, But not just any woman, okay? This woman is a sinner, (laughs) She had five husbands, was with a six that wasn't her husband. Um, and he just said, I offer you myself. I offer you salvation. In fact, by the end of the story, we see she goes back and she says to her friends, the Samaritans, maybe they're not her friends, we don't know, um, could this be the Christ? You guys have to see this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. You've got to go see him. Some people believe from her testimony. And then they came out. And this is really neat in the story. Jesus says, look up. The harvest is ready, right? It's a harvest that you did not work for, but you will reap from. And some people think that as he was saying, look up, all these men were coming out from the village wearing these, these white, similar to Muslims, they wear these white caps, okay? That he was seeing all these white caps come out. And he said, look up, look at the harvest. They're here, they're coming. That day is now, right? So it's an exciting thing that's going on in the story um, he stayed there for two days, and we know that many of the Samaritans uh, were saved. So I realized I didn't address a lot of the middle stuff of the story, okay? I want you guys to go home and read it again. Now in light of maybe understanding this cultural context a little bit better, read through what did Jesus say to her? What didn't he say to her? When he, when he drew out her sin, what was, the, what was the point of that? Was he judging her, or was he offering, you are a sinner, now I'm here. I'm here to pay your sin. I'm that guy that you need. I am the Christ. And so when it comes down to it, Jesus looked past all of that baggage. He looked past that sin that she had. He looked past the history as being a Samaritan. He looked past all it right away, got right to her heart. And you even see a shift in this woman, okay, in the conversation. She starts out, some say a little playful with him even. Like, okay, so she's a morally loose woman and a little bit playful. Like, wait a second, I, I'm not going to give you, like, you're a Jew, kind of, some even say, like, maybe a little flirting with Jesus. That certainly wasn't in Jesus' mind, like, that's what he was there to do. Um, but because of her character, they think, you know, she's a little playful with him. And then as soon as he said, go get your husband, um, things changed all of a sudden. But, no, you guys say you worship there. So that her mask came off. He saw right to her heart. He knew her need. And uh, it's just a great story. Anyways, we're going to get the application here. First, we're going to look at... Um, What do we learn about God from the story? I like to, before we just look at the story and say, what can we do? Because that's not really the gospel. The gospel is first who we are, right? And then because of that, that's what we do. So I want to look first at what do we see about God in the story? What do we learn about God first? Um, We see that he is ridiculously compassionate, that he is ridiculously loving, that he looks past people's race. In fact, he like invented race, right? He's the one that created us. He's able to look past that. He's able to look past religion and nationality and even people's sin. 
right? I was convicted when I read through this, you know, first thinking in light of my ministry with the Muslims, but then looking back to when I just was working as, as an engineer, working with middle-class Americans, just people, you know, like us, I guess, um, and thinking, okay, this guy, he really loves the party. Okay, this guy, he really loves women, and so he's sleeping around. This guy really likes to do this sin and this and this. You know, they're not going to want Jesus, you know? They're happy with what they're doing. But Jesus looks right past that. He looks right past the sin, and he offers life, okay? So we learn this about God. He's intentional. He seeks people out. Not only did Jesus have to go through Samaria, he then said, God is seeking worshipers. He is seeking people out. So God seeks people. He reveals sin not to judge in this context. He reveals sin to bring about reconciliation, right? It's when we see our woeful condition that we understand our need for a Savior. If we don't understand we're sinners, we don't understand that we need to save from our sin, right? So he's pointing out her sin um, in a loving way to point her to himself, right? And then last is he, he offers himself without reservation. This woman is like, has everything going against her in terms of what the Jews would think, right? She's not a Jew. She's sexually immoral. You know, she's even, she's out in the middle of the day because the other women probably don't correspond with her. She's just, she's an outcast, right? Um, Jesus just, I will give you this water that is a well, an everlasting spring. That I, I will just give you so much of me that you can't even, you will never thirst again, right? So it doesn't matter what situation she's in. He offers himself to her fully. So I think that's what we can learn about God in this story. I'm certain there's more than that. That's what kind of pulled out. The second is then, you know, Jesus says in John 21, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Okay, Jesus was sent to earth to die to himself. He was sent to earth to serve. He was sent to earth to love. And I think that more broadly, we can look at Jesus' ministry and we can see how we should be. We should be sent the way that Jesus was sent. And so how can we, in the same way, number one, be intentional? He, was intent- he had to go through Samaria. He sought this woman out. There was a, design, a divine a meeting here. Um, he didn't circumvent Samaria. He went through where he shouldn't have been. Religiously, he shouldn't have gone there. Culturally, he shouldn't have gone there. Culturally, he shouldn't have talked to this woman. But he did. He went. He was intentional. Um, he looked past her religion. He looked past her sin. He looked past all of this. And he said, had you asked, I would have given you living water. So that's the second thing. So the first, intentionality. How can we be intentional? Who is it in our lives that God has already placed that we can intentionally seek after them, pursue them, love them relentlessly the way that God has loved us? He pursued us, right? We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. And yet he opened our eyes. He he breathed into us the life, the breath of life, right, through the Spirit. He sought after us. How can we seek the lost, right? Then the second is that he offered himself despite all of the baggage this woman had. How can we look past people, the outward of the people, right? We want to see into their hearts. We want to see their need, their dire need for salvation, right? It's hard to sometimes. It's hard to look past this. I mean, you, you see this. How, how do you look? I mean, it's, it's freaky. Like, that's freaky. <laughs> how do you look past that? But Jesus just looks right past, and he said, had you asked, I would have given you living water. And then she says, I want some of this water. I want it. She, she knew it. She, she wanted this water. And then Jesus said, go get your husband, you know, brought out that sin a little bit so she could see it. And as she saw it, as he revealed it in a gracious, loving way, she understood she needed salvation. She understood that he was the salvation. And so my encouragement for you guys this morning is just to be intentional. God sought after us. He's seeking people, and yet he uses us to take the gospel to them. It's very clear through scripture that the means that God used to bring the gospel to people is through other people. And that's us, followers of Jesus, believers in Christ, ones who God dwells in. We have the privilege to take the gospel to people. We are in God's story. It's his story. He's doing it but we have the privilege of being a part of it. And so I just want to invite you guys, whether it's you know, getting plugged into some of what we're doing or just looking at your neighbors and realize, you know what, even though they have a party every Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, they still need Jesus. Even if they you know, don't want him right away, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pursue them. I'm gonna love them. I'm gonna serve them the way that Jesus serves, you know, that we read about in the Bible. 
That's what we want to do. That's our job as the church. That's the only reason that God keeps us here when we're saved. That's the only thing we can't do in heaven. We can't make disciples in heaven because everyone there is already the disciple. So we receive Christ, we worship him, we love him, and then we respond by telling the world. And that's what we're called to do. So I want you guys to stand up. We're going to pray together, and we're going to sing some more. We're just going to praise God for him saving us, right, that he sought after us. And then we're just going to sing about being lights in the world, a light on a hill that shines brightly, right? That's what we're called to do. Jesus, thank you so much for dying for us. Thank you for coming to redeem humanity to you. Thank you, God, that you didn't stay dead, that you rose from the grave, that in you there is life and life everlasting, God, that you don't just fill us some, God, but you fill us all the way. God, you give us joy, you give us life, you give us freedom. God, we are, we are free in Christ. We are free to obey you. We are free to follow you. We are free to take risk because we can't lose anything, God. If we die, what's the worst that happens? We go to be with you. What could be better? So God, help us just to live in light of eternity, live in light of you wanting to redeem a people for yourself and the fact that you use us to do that. God, just help us to be intentional, to be purposeful, to offer freedom and salvation to the world because they are lost and they are going to hell without you, God. So just do a work. Go before us. Prepare hearts of the people we might talk to and pray for and share with. God, we know that you do the work and we just want to be doing it with you, God. We want to be your partners and just take your gospel, the truth of your son Jesus, the glorious reality of his death and resurrection. We want to take that to the world. So God, give us Give us um, the bravery to do that. Help us to be people that are not afraid to, to go to scary places, to take the gospel to people who hate us, enemies of us. Jesus, because that's what you did. You brought the gospel to enemies, sinners of God, and you brought the gospel to us, and you are the gospel. And Jesus, we love you, and we praise you. God, just go with us today. Help us to be encouraged each day. God, help this body to to connect throughout the week and to encourage each other and to hold each other up and to hold our arms up as we we praise you and worship you, God, and just help each other um, in the struggles and the good times and the bad. God, just help us be a body that glorifies you every single day of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.